I was writing about this the other day. I was actually on a supervisory visit when Black Wednesday happened in '92 in Cardiff, as it as it turns out, which narrows it down a bit. Um, and it was really interesting just how UK interest rates just kept going up, seemed like hourly. Silly part of me, it quite likes the idea of sitting back and letting the market balance itself out a bit before before taking any significant new measures. But we shall see. There is this distinction where you have e-money issues issuers and payment payment services providers who are lightly regulated compared to banks. Yeah. Even though banks do many of the same um, activities. Hi and welcome to Grant Thornton's Risk and Regulation Unraveled podcast. Uh, my name is David Moy and I'm joined as ever by Kevin Stewart. Say hello, Kevin. Hello. Hi there. Uh, we are taking our sort of monthly ramble through regulatory developments and uh, um, the events in, in financial services regulation more generally. Um, I say sort of monthly because we've been a bit erratic what, with summer holidays and things. Um, and also, frankly, Gavin, uh, had we sat down at any point over the last two or three weeks and recorded this, it would have been redundant almost by the, by the end of the podcast, given yeah, market events. Instantly out of date, although obviously the next two weeks are going to, you know, be go slow mode. So. Well, we are we are record, we are recording this on uh, the fifth of October. Um, as as far as I'm aware, uh, no, n- 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 the UK hasn't declared bankruptcy this morning. But uh, although our new prime minister has given a speech at the Tory Party conference, uh, where I think she rather uh, proudly proclaimed herself to be a disruptor, um, and on the basis of the last few weeks, I'd say she's achieving that magnificently, wouldn't you? Um, we. Uh, so what has happened since the last uh, and and we, uh, the last podcast? And we will unashamedly sort of, I think, lead with the um, some of the, the the bigger picture macroeconomic developments, not not uh, not with a view to unraveling them, uh, and not with a view to giving any investment recommendations either, but but rather to to try and relate that back to what it means for our regulatory bodies. Now, since our last podcast, we've had a new prime minister, a new cabinet. We had a mini budget. Um, maybe connected in some way. We had a significant leap in gilt yields, uh, you know, falling government bond values. Uh, I think the Bank of England uh, announced an emergency 13-day or something bond buying programme in order to try and stabilise uh, UK government bond prices. Um, and we'll come on to sort of the pension fund impacts and why that was uh, that was driving that decision. Um, and obviously, you know, that's been described, I think, as a, as a panic buying, a, a panic measure by the Bank of England. I suppose in some ways it was, although um, I would just note that uh, the Bank of England has been buying bonds for government bonds for about 13 years, actually. So the last 13 days doesn't necessarily change that. But, but the, clearly the market sentiment around it was very different. Um, we've seen pension funds really being put under pressure by all reports, the uh, liability-driven investment strategies, which tend to make quite heavy use of derivatives to try and you know, marry up the pension liabilities to the investment profiles, um, have been uh, have been uh, challenged with some fairly large margin calls because of the prices, uh, the, the market prices of bonds in particular, government bonds in particular. Um, so uh, yeah, we, we, it is a bit of a perfect storm, isn't it, Gavin? It, it occurred to me that you know we often we have to talk about the PRA in isolation and the FCA in isolation, and occasionally even the the pensions regulator in isolation. But uh, but actually, this is one one of those things that 
is all three, isn't it? How's how's that nexus going to be working? Do you think? Um, so, well, we don't we don't really know at the moment. Um, but I, I mean, you'd assume that behind the scenes there was quite a lot of talk going on, also involving the Financial Policy Committee, which is meant to coordinate some of this. Although the action taken, as far as we could tell, again is solely by the bank as the bank rather than the PRA as a regulator. Um, I, I think, I mean, doubtless, you know, more information is appearing all the time, and I'm sure we'll find out more. Uh, but one thing I'd, I'd probably observe is, and we've talked about this before, is that pensions is one of those areas where there are lots of different uh, authorities involved. We've routinely talked about the FCA, the pensions regulator, um, and the Department of Work and Pensions. We haven't previously talked about the bank, um, but obviously when we're talking, you know, they're the people who intervened because of the, you know, the what was happening in the gold market. Uh, so I think, you know, there is something about not so much being critical of any of the individual regulators, but just whether the system is particularly good at joining up the dots until something is really going wrong. I'm not aware that this this particular event was anywhere really on a regulator's radar, even as a kind of high risk, low probability occurrence. Um, so I, I think there probably is something to kind of learn going forward. Uh, I, yeah, I think it's really interesting because um, coming at it from a investment management perspective, you've got investment managers in particular, or some banks as well, um, you know, who've laid on their ODI investing for quite some time. And um, I'm fairly sure for a pension trustees who have kind of put their put 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 members funds into into those into those vehicles would not have seen this coming, would not have understood that this was uh, a risk. And I know, I don't know, we you know it's a, it's a severe market movement in the sense that it is for the UK at least a more extreme movement than we we're certainly used to seeing in guilt guilt prices, but. But, but even so, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, even from a from an investor point of view, it was really understood that this was that this was a possible a possible scenario. So I'm not surprised the regulator didn't see it coming. And I think that that has implications. Like 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 most like most of these you know, crises that no one saw coming, it almost always seems to spawn some form of ultimate regulatory response in terms of new rules um, to try and you know reduce risk, stabilize the market longer term. Um, so I, I can't see how this won't have some impact. Yes, I mean, we talk a lot um, about sort of structure of regulation, uh, and I think this is one of those examples where, you know, something potentially, because it's, its responsibility is spread between different authorities, it's almost impossible to pick up the full potential impact of something. Uh, and I think it just reinforces the importance of building bridges across different regulators and also actually within some of the regulators. So we talk about silos within the FCA, for example. Yeah. Um, I think you know we might talk about Wirecard a little bit later on, um, which I think is an example, a potential example of one of those. Uh, this might be a quick time for a quick segue um, to um, Potentially a very, very significant development if it occurs, uh, which is uh, the comment by Liz Truss during a Tory leadership elections that she might consider bringing together again um, the FCA and the PRA, and and I believe that the the, the same uh, the same point has been raised again on sort of 
in meetings in and around the Tory party conference. So I don't think that's necessarily gone away as a as, as an idea. Um, well, we don't need to replay the kind of <laughs> kind of the uh, the Twin Peaks in reverse and, and the implications of that. But um, I, I would imagine the events of the last couple of weeks only makes that kind of decision more likely, perhaps because I mean, of I, what you're describing. I'm not sure. I mean, I I really don't think it solves any yeah. of the problems. I really don't think that structure no. structure as no. such is the answer to this. <laughs> Because you you know if you end up with one great amorphous regulator, you just have lots of cleavages within it, yeah. uh, and it doesn't you know what you need is the ability to join up the dots, and that that inevitably requires moving across different specialisms and different you know different areas of the market, uh, and being able to understand what the overall relevance or impact of something might be. No, I agree with that. And, and and again, just just for the record, I, I I didn't I didn't say it would solve the problem. I just I just said <laughs> politician. When when when's that a consideration for politicians? I um um no, uh, I shouldn't say that. But uh, it's not always uh it's not always a, a reason for not doing something. Um, and as you know, I'm not a huge fan necessarily of the Twin Peaks system that we've got. No. But I I don't think unwinding it ten years later is anywhere near the no you know the right thing to do. No, I think we, yeah, we, we don't need that extra disruption. So, so is this any situation? I mean, we could look back at parts of past crises and what that's meant for regulatory priorities. I mean, I guess, I guess you go far back, back far enough, like Black Wednesday and things. You you're into kind of a predate anything that predates the current regulatory structure. But we we get into sort of the you know nine eleven and the some of the market fallout that occurred after that and the pandemic, I suppose, uh, more, more recently. Um, yeah, is that, I mean, they, they, those those things undoubtedly caused regulatory priorities to shift around quite significantly. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, I, I was actually on a, I was writing about this the other day, I was actually on a supervisory visit when Black Wednesday happened in 92 in Cardiff, as it, as it turns out, which narrows it down a bit. Um, and it was really interesting just how UK interest rates just kept going up, seemed like hourly. Um, the reaction back in the office was much more measured. Uh, and I think it'll be interesting to see how all the regulators react to the events of the last week or probably over the next few months. The only thing that makes me pause a little bit is that the world is actually quite different from it was in 1992. You know the the speed at which the news cycle moves is yeah. is way faster, uh, and also the the general politicisation around regulation uh, and the fact that we've just been talking about you know it featured in the Conservative Party leadership yeah. campaign. Yeah. You know that never happened before. Yeah. Um. So so I just wonder whether actually it might all be a little bit fast. Dare I say too fast? in terms of how how the you know both the fca and and the pra respond to some of this it is yeah it's it, 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 yeah i mean a lot i mean a lot depends uh you know even to the to the to the, the ldr issue we've been talking around in terms of pension pension funds being pension schemes being hammered uh on margin calls you know that, a lot depends on if that's a, a blip or if there's a uh, you know, it's a longer-term issue, in which case, you know, with bond prices, in which case, you know, those uh, it will be more than a margin call. I'll have to close out contracts at 
a, a very uh, negative outturn. So, um, yeah, to some to some extent, you're absolutely trying to hit a moving target, and uh, certainly part of me quite likes the idea of sitting back and letting the market balance itself out a bit before before taking any significant new measures. But we shall see. Yes, and I think that's what regulators typically do. If you take two different types of crisis, so when the dot com bubble burst, yeah, yeah, just after the millennium, and actually yeah. even yeah. after nine eleven, the you know the the FSA was was quite measured and um, I think well thought through on the whole in the way that it 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 responded to and managed those particular situations. Uh, in the markets, and obviously there was more, particularly the latter case, there's so much else going on. Uh, but I just wonder how easy that, whether that's actually become harder. Yes, politically unsustainable, potentially. Uh, that, that, that I think is uh, is the question, isn't it? Oh boy, I think we might be talking about this one in the future then. Um, so distilling some of this down to a more sort of consumer impact kind of level, um, of the interest rates are a lot higher. I saw today, uh, you know, two-year fixed mortgage mortgage would be about six percent if you were taking one out today, which is obviously far, far higher than it was uh, even a few weeks ago. Um, and inflation is continuing to sit obstinately around the sort of nine, nine, ten percent level. So, um, consumers' cost of living challenges. Actually, I thought in energy prices might have might have started to drop down a little bit, but I noticed, I noticed someone's been blowing holes in the Nord Stream pipelines under the Baltic. Um, that's, uh, I think almost everybody's been potentially blamed for that. I'm surprised Grant Thornton isn't being fingered as a potential culprit, actually, given the number of potential candidates for for, for that. But anyway, so so that's clearly unlikely to be good news from a sort of European winter perspective. Uh, but but uh, in, in the round, cost of living still very, very scary. Um, I mean, I think are we talking about a situation in which in which uh, we could see some bigger financial services firms trying to de-risk a bit? I know we talk about financial inclusion from time to time, but you know, is there, is this going to make um, some access access to some things mortgages being a notable one, you know, even more restrictive in terms of who can get them? Yes, um, I mean, I. So I think the first thing to, to sort of say is that actually we don't really know what this sort of cost of living crisis is like in regulatory terms because regulation as we currently understand it didn't exist the last yeah. time we were anywhere near this. Yeah. Uh, so so you know so to an extent this is all you know we're, this is a new playbook. Uh, I, I think though you can. You, you can identify some of the areas where there might be more stress than others. Um, I think if you're the FCA, you're looking at kind of consumer credit, um, mortgages, places where consumers are very exposed, you know, where they've taken out, you know, they've taken out loans that um, they might not be able to service. Yeah. Uh, or they or they may choose not to service because they have other bigger priorities. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you're the PRA, you're looking at the flip side of that, where you know interest rates going up obviously potentially improves margins, but actually you probably quite quickly focus on well, what's the quality of your loan book, uh, and and you know and how much confidence does if I go back to the secondary banking crisis in the early 90s how much confidence do your lenders have um 
in your liquidity and your and the asset quality of your book um because we find that you know there were quite a lot of uh, smaller banks were very reliant on wholesale funding um and that proved variable in terms of how yes. reliable that proved in practice yes clearly yes and we all know the stories there yes well i mean it's something that's, that's kind of bubbled away without really leading much to much of regulatory output has been the um uh mortgage prisoners so these are people yes. basically stuck with their current mortgage provider and and um that's may have been bearable when you know interest rates are very low but could potentially be a pain point that now they're increasing so i don't know whether you know picking out an obvious and potentially an obvious and specific area that the regulator could try and take action on um, no i mean it's been a you know it's been a problem for <laughs> you know, over 10 years and and one way or another, the FCA's never properly managed to sort it out. Um, I, I do worry actually where people are rolling off. Um, I need to know more about the going to the mortgage market and regulation in more detail, but where people are rolling off fixed term mortgages, um, how easy they'll find it to get on to another deal, given where we are with the cost of loan crisis and and so on, you know, so how much disposable income they'll have in order to be able to meet that test. Um, and we'll have to wait and see. But but I do think mortgages is a real is a real really sensitive area at the moment. Yes. I mean there's those affordability rules which you know came into force essentially when interest rates were low. Uh and and therefore I mean you know very sensible to you know, assess the afford uh, assess whether the loan is affordable to um a borrower clearly but um those rules are clearly been you know the higher interest rates go the the less uh the less people can clear the hurdle for uh for, for being approved um and i we, still i was going to say connected with that i still worry a bit that the fca still <coughs> remains behind the curve yeah well, the you, 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 read, you read the fca board minutes was there anything anything well i mean the latest yeah, ones are yeah. july and they barely mention it i mean obviously they were in the, they were in the previous ones um the FCA board never used to meet in August. I assume it didn't this time, so we wouldn't have the September ones yet. Uh, but it, it still seems to be very much a case of reminding firms what their obligations are under existing regulation. And I just worry that that regulation wasn't written with uh, the scale of, let's say, vulnerable consumers in mind. And therefore, actually, you're you're shifting the the onus on the firms in a way that you know the best firm in the world would struggle to yeah. meet properly yeah. um Very hard. and i think well i understand i think it's inevitable in some ways i, th I think talking about talking a lot about the consumer the consumer duty mm. which doesn't come in until next july is probably muddying the waters a little bit in terms of what firms obligations are now as opposed to what they will be a year from now mm. well i do wonder yeah well i mean i assume it is sort of beginning to filter in my experience to, to conversations with supervision already in the sense of this isn't in force yet but um those concepts are, are you know are still valuable ones to consider dear firm um yes yes yeah. I, I mean we're well, we've got precedent now though haven't we i mean the, the covid response plan which kind of materialized very very quickly uh it once there was political pressure to do so in the fca lots of <clears throat> lots of temporary 
regime measures to to you know uh, reduce the strain on consumers probably in hindsight many of which weren't necessary because of the scale of the furlough scheme but you know oh, well we've spoken before but you know there's a is there not a toolkit there which might get wheeled out <clears throat> if the I mean pressure yeah. is hard high enough you know yes there is and having you know given there's a precedent as well I mean we'll have to wait and see I mean it may be that the support packages that were announced in that not so many budget um you know do the job um I mean that this the scale and unpredictability of what's happening probably means there's more to come one way or another but but I think for now we'll, we'll, it's probably best to kind of just just to kind of have a a reasonable size caveat yeah yes yeah I, I, yes I vote for that um okay so moving on a little bit but still staying in the political realm uh deregulation I think is is uh, we can now we can now call it what it is can't we because it's 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 it's, it's arguably the flavor of the month it was uh the chancellor gave his conference speech and I think the biggest round of applause he got was when he was talking about rolling back EU regulation um particularly financial services regulation obviously obviously in his case so uh yeah I think uh I, I think I think that that particular train has left the station hasn't it it's, there's gonna have to be some things happening as a result yes you would you would assume so um I, I've been I mean I've been trying to write something on that on this today actually and it's just trying to map out really what we might be talking about so I mean there was an FCA speech last week about what they're already doing on growth yeah which makes it sound like there's a lot but clearly the government wants them to do more um you've obviously got solvency too in the crosshairs yeah that's been um, and named that's, as the first 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 uh, and that's kind of a I suppose so. that's been kind of priced in we've also got abolition of the bonus cap yeah uh so those are the things we kind of know most about and then you've got this sunset clause in the EU deregulation, whatever it's called, bill going through, um, which will mean everything needs to be reviewed and something done with it by the end of next year. Although I don't see how that's going to happen, given there really just isn't the amount of right resource in the FCA, PRA, or indeed the Treasury that you would need to do this remotely, competently, yes. I don't but, think. As I understand it, the bill gives gives the minister discretion to back that out to like twenty twenty six or something, doesn't it? It's so, which I'm assuming will will happen. But uh, yeah, there's an extension mechanism, and again, you know, again, I, I think I, I, you wouldn't be shocked if, no. if that was <laughs> if that was fairly widely used. Um, and then I was kind of thinking, what if it's to boost growth? What are we really talking about? So you've got you've already got the Hill review, which is do with listing and capital raising mm -hmm. that that's from last year you've got Khalifa which talks about fintechs and innovation and so on so fine the things we've already talked about but then I think you're into the world of well do we regulate fewer things do we have um, fewer regulations for the same things or do we effectively exempt classes of firms from some mm -hmm. elements of regulation but that feels like it makes it might be good for the financial sector and you maybe bring more firms into the UK and maybe they all end up paying more tax. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how it feeds through and I've talked to some people and. You know, who, who know more about this than I do, and they're 
they're a bit bemused as well as to whether that feeds through into direct growth in the real economy or not. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, they'll, you know, we'll wait and see what the Chancellor says, but but I'm sure there'll be a lot in it. Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I, yeah, you mentioned obviously too, it was very clearly signposted as the, as you know, as the first landmark EU regulation that's going to be reviewed. I talk to people in industry, I, you know, the, the insurance company end of things. I, on the on the whole, they're not they're not really expecting significant changes, or um, or or to the extent they are, it's because government forces the hand of the regulators rather than you know necessarily being a, a regulatory driven or regulator driven um, driven revisions. I mean, there's also I mean there'll be people who understand this far more far better than I do, but there's also a question as to you know whether the UK, to what extent the UK can be effective acting unilaterally in terms of deregulation, where you've got international firms who are operating across multiple international markets, uh, and whether actually what we do make, you know, is a more than a hill of beans in, in that yes. world. Yeah. Don't know. Yeah. Um, we, well, we shall see. We shall see. But clearly, it's something we're going to be talking about because uh, I think at this point, this so much political momentum behind it that something's going to have to be delivered. Um, talk to, I guess, part of that, at least from a, you know, a legal framework point of view, is the new financial services bill, which is is where the future regulatory framework is is in encapsulated. Um, I think it's had its second reading now. It's about a week ago or so. So it's moving. It's moving forward. I guess one of the one of the things that there's again go back to the Tory leadership contest was was kind of cropped up in a few debates and things was whether or not there should be a, a, a calling power. This this idea that the if the regulator was doing something or introducing some new regulation that the government didn't want, then they would be called in and presumably spanked and then sent sent back to the office to to, to fix it. Um, and, and that's that's I mean that that's that was talked about. It's not in the bill as it currently stands, is it? So the question I, I think it's coming in though. I, oh, think, okay. Okay. I think both Liz Trust and Rishi Sunak were pretty clear that they were going to bring it back in. So yeah. I think the question then becomes, assuming it goes through, the question then becomes how frequently the Treasury will use that power. Yes. Yes. Well will they need to? I mean, I guess I guess if you know if you know that power exists, then will you exactly <laughs> probably if you're the CEO of one of the regulators, you're probably you know on top of your list of things to do in the year is to avoid getting called in. So uh, um, talking to your political lords and masters would address that. Okay, all right. So there's a lot going on in the world, and and um, when we record this podcast in a month's time, it might all have changed. Uh, and I apologise if, if if we're now out of date. Um, let's let's talk about some of the other news though, because there are there are the usual mix of, of you know regulatory developments, actual actual kind of regulator taking action type type uh, uh, things to cover. Uh, and you you mentioned top of the list here, consumer duty final rules came out in August, uh, spoiling a many many a summer holiday. Um, I, so we are running multiple events on the consumer duty, so I'm not going to go into you know, the details of the consumer duty. Um, we, there's certainly plenty of opportunity to. To, to 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 listen to another podcast, for instance, uh, we we put up which um, deals with it in more detail. Um, but I guess the headlines for our for our purposes are um, the final rules did push out the implementation date a little bit, so it went from I think April twenty three to July twenty three. Whole three months. Woohoo! Um, put your feet up and relax, guys. Um, uh, but it also sort of gave with one hand and, and took away with another because it introduced. Um, 
an expectation or requirement that boards of regulated entities um, need to approve the implementation plan, their implementation plan for the consumer duty um, by the end of October, uh, which is completely, so there was, that was not in a consultation paper at all. That was, that's a completely new thing. So there's a lot of scrambling going on to, to deal with that. Um, so, uh, I mean, that, that raises various questions, various challenges about what should go in the plan. I think the FCA said, um, oh, actually, it was in a speech. I think so Sheldon Mills gave a speech on the consumer duty, which was great. He, he actually he starts by telling the story of how, as a seven-year-old with his grandmother, he opened his first bank account and he got a calculator and a ruler, and how great, a good, good, good a consumer journey that was. So, um, that's a bit dodgy <laughs> to me, but anyway. <laughs> um, no, no, that's clearly, yeah, we're not going to pay your business interruption claim, but here's a calculator and a ruler. Uh, <laughs> job done. Um, uh, so, oh, well, the, the strangest thing about that story, though, was he went to his local branch to do it. So I think, what's a branch? Anyway, um, but so, so on this point about the October plan, he said, uh, quote, we do not expect firms to have necessarily full scoped all work required to embed the duty by the October deadline. The firm's plan should be sufficiently developed to provide their governing bodies and us with assurance that the duty will be fully implemented for new and existing products by next July. Um, so it's got, it sounds like, yeah, they're expecting that a lot of these will be plan plan for a plan type type things in October. But um, I guess my my takeaway from that sentence is, is it still seems to be clear that you know the full implementation by next July. Um, is that, yes, is that I'll be interested. I'll be interested to see what boards come back with. Yeah. Um. I, I, and I wouldn't be I wouldn't be shocked if there was pushback. Uh, on the on the um, implementation timetable, given what else is going on and the scale of the change. Yeah, was, I mean, we're obviously as a, as a firm engaged in a lot of consumer duty implementations, and it's and it's hard to see. You know, a, a, a thoroughgoing implementation exercise will undoubtedly reveal things that need to change in the way you oversee your products and the way you, you, you monitor outcomes uh, in a number of ways, potentially. Um, and so, you know, the time is one thing to identify those is another thing to fix it or fix it. So it's hard to see how the, the fix will happen. You might, you might have identified the issues, but it's hard to see how you'll fix all of the, all of the issues that, that come to light uh, in that time scale. So and I think fixing them under, under extreme stress. Yes. Is, is a test for any, system many organization um i'll just be really interested to see how it plays out yeah i might and they might have to turn yeah you might be looking at some relatively time consuming but sophisticated prioritization exercise because you're, you're right i mean not all in, in particularly in a fast moving situation like we're in uh economically you know the you might have you'll have to make prioritization decisions about what you fix first and so maybe maybe that what you fix first is becomes more important than the overall timeline. I don't know. Um, uh, one interesting thing about that speech, besides the uh, the calculator and the ruler, I thought was um, was uh, uh, it's a speech on consumer duty, and uh, it goes out of its way to talk about how consumer duty will promote growth and um, competition. <laughs> so, so and it, so I, I saw that and I was like, oh, okay, okay. Well, we're obviously in the, in the new. In the new uh, financial services bill, we, we're going to have a secondary objective around competition, et cetera, and growth. So, um, should I now expect every every new regulatory development will have 
be couched in the language of growth and competition, even if it's a bit tangential. Is that is that where we're heading? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, good. Good. Well, I look forward to reading many more strained justifications for why something is a, is, is a win for growth. Um, okay, what, what else uh, landed in the news? Well, uh, the FDA, FDA restructuring came into effect um, a few weeks ago, so that's that's bringing policy and supervision together, um, albeit under retail and wholesale subdivisions. Um, I mean, we've we, we touched on that because obviously that's that's been trailed for a while, so we know that we know that's coming. I mean, it's it's uh, and it kind of links maybe into our earlier discussion about you know mer potentially merging FCA and PLA again. It's you know, do these the structure changes are not necessarily of themselves the answer to the problem. Yes, I, th I think that's right. I mean, what we know of it is relatively sensible, but it would be wrong to underestimate how many people are just in new jobs doing different things with different reporting lines. Um, and interestingly, the FCA issued its how we apply update of how we apply the senior managers regime ah, right. last week. And, and I, I wrote something about, you know, the, the kind of the perennial governance problems that the FSA and then the FCA have have had over the years. Uh, and hopefully it'll help sort some of this out. But a lot of a lot of the tensions in there are quite sort of deep seated. Yes. Uh, so. I don't think we should be expecting any any miraculous change no. you know, anytime soon. But no, hopefully it'll be better. No, no, you're right. You're right about the, the roles. I mean, there's a there's obviously there's been quite a lot of turnover at the executive director level as well. And and because of the restructure, there'll be different roles, people sitting in different roles, um, even if they're not new to the organization. Actually, one of those new roles is uh an international director, mm. which is something we we've had before i think and then as a, as a sort of part of someone else's job although you were saying it was during brexit it was a yes during brexit it was a it was a bigger deal historically it's it's quite often been a head of department job with at least a dotted reporting line through to the chairman who does a lot of the international mm. representation for the uh fsa fca um I, I think the key thing with this is how much authority it has across the organization so the role is really about policy coordination and um, and sort of you know joining the dots and having an overall strategy and that's really hard to do yeah. when you've got so many different strands of policy work uh, and it's been quite a contentious role at times in the past. Uh, so again, it'll be just be interesting to see how it plays out. A bit like the ESG director role that we talked about yeah. a few months back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess. It, it shows a intent as much as anything, doesn't it? But yes, whether it practically is a is a role that can really make a difference, will uh, any time will tell. Um, talk about F FCA staff. I know the, the the Treasury Select Committee is 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 planning, I believe, a, a hearing on FCA morale. Uh, yes, I mean you you talked about turnover and so on. I mean mm -hmm. there's a there's been a sort of welter of I hesitate to say conflicting statistics, but they it's very hard to make a um a single coherent picture of them where the fca has, has produced a whole fca has produced a whole load of numbers and then you get the results of freedom of information requests from yes you know the ft or thomson reuters and you try and fit it all together and you fail miserably yeah. so I, I think a bit of transparency wouldn't be a bad thing yeah. um I, and it'd be interesting to hear i mean anecdotally there's quite a lot 
going on in terms of um, tribunals and various bits and pieces. And yeah, yeah we'll no, see. We I mean, we talked about the strike before, strike, so there's no yeah. need to belabor the whole thing again now. But just to say, it's in a it's in a difficult place that way. I think. Well, it, it, there's no precedent as we well clearly for the strike, but also for this. I don't know. There's no, there's no for a prior CEO of the FCA or FSA that's had to front up the Treasury Select Committee to talk about staff morale or anything close to it is there so um yeah it's it's got some uh, got some got some um st stories going to continue to play out clearly um uh sort of, uh, another committee that's active the public accounts committee uh have announced they're going to hold an inquiry into the british steel pension scheme and, and the advice obviously around that which has got the potential to throw the fca's role into into focus, possibly not in a favourable way, depending on, on, on where they land. Yeah, I mean, I think that's off the back of a fairly critical NAO report. And from yes. what I can tell, they're, they're, they've invited written evidence from a whole range of stakeholders, including the including obviously the regulators. Um, so we'll wait and see on that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, another another um, another uh, issue that, that could lead to um, the FCA having to develop uh, a, a plan. I'm thinking, thinking back to the uh, the LCNF, the Gloucester report, which actually segues to to the next item I've got down here, which is uh, it was the regulators being on the telly, um, sorry, uh, television, uh, probably on a tablet device of some kind. I'm sorry, showing my age here, but anyway, uh, Panorama had an episode on the Black Blackmore mini bonds, which actually seemed to me just to be an alternate version of the LCNF story um, in terms of falling in the grey area regulation wise and people definitely being you know missold uh missold things uh investment bonds um i didn't in that sense take too much away from it, other than i guess it raises the question about whether this might also end up being in a, having a special compensation scheme in the same way that lcnf did um yeah. yes the, the only thing i'd add in the context of our previous discussion is um if you're in the world of deregulation, do you, you know, do you pull back the perimeter so that things like mini bonds are conspicuously not regulated, or do you, as I think is is what's happening, you kind of you pull them in so they're within the regulatory yeah, yeah, world. That's exactly. But that's more again. regulation. High risk consumer. So risk. it's yeah. quite, you know, there's a there's a push and pull here. It's not a one way street. Yes, deregulation suggests you know buyer beware, more buyer beware. Yep. But um, then you have the BBC doing a show on or customers that have lost out, and it becomes very difficult to toe that line potentially. Um, but, uh, but it wasn't just Panorama; though. Netflix um, have been doing covering uh, Wirecard, uh, which yes. I haven't been watching, but I gather you have. And what, what's your takeaway on that? Clearly, sir. Oh, it's, it's censored in Germany, but uh, but has its UK implications. Oh, it's cracking. Um... So, so I w w wouldn't normally be flagging this, you know, um, I think well, binge, other, stream, other streaming habits. channels yes. are available. Yeah. Um, but, but in this case, because the FT did the, you know, did the investigative reporting, I think it's, you know, and it's such a big story. I think it's absolutely worth talking about in this context. Uh, and as you, I'm sure lots of people have been following it. This goes back to, I mean, it, it all came out in the open early summer 2020, but it had been going back several years before that. Uh, and you get the full story. The, the thing that was new to me was um, partly from the FT's reporting, it, you know, when the 
um, the program came out is that actually we were thinking that the FCA had really only reacted once Wirecard broke in Germany. Um, but in fact, the FCA had looked into the possibility of the FT being involved in short selling the FT Wirecard stock. Um, <laughs> so, so I think, so I, you know, whereas the regulatory bit, the bit of, you know, is there really a story here? Is it really a sort of, you know, criminal operation? Um, wasn't looked at. I have to say that you know, German regulators, where Wirecard's much bigger, mm. made the same sorts of decisions. Um, but it did make me think that actually you've got the the market abuse bit, market monitoring bit of the FCA, and you've got the supervision bit of the FCA. Both will be strapped for resource, but once you get over the hurdle in market monitoring, you probably have more resource to do stuff with. But it doesn't feel like it's particularly joined up, put it like that. No, that's if that's you're looking at the two sides of it and the and the relative likelihood and the, the, yeah, the, the making some kind of judgment. It's really the interesting. likelihood that the Financial Times journalists will be manipulating the market for personal profit. I want to story. Um, I mean it's not impossible, I suppose, but it would be um it's quite as quite a story. <laughs> Uh, yes, Which is like, part yeah. of the accusation that was being made in Germany, absolutely central to it. Mm, okay. Um, but but anyway. Uh, well, yes, potentially shows the fact it, it was raised in the UK suggests the, as you say, the market monitoring team potentially had more time to look at it than yeah. other parts of the FCA, which is why they were. And, and again, there is this distinction where you have e-money <laughs> issues, issuers and payment payment services providers who are lightly regulated compared to banks yeah even though banks do many of the same um activities uh and and therefore they have less resource less attention and so on i think some of that is changing now but but historically certainly less power less authority and again there's a question when you get the deregulation agendas what do you really mean in this space so you know th there is merit to deregulation. I'm not I'm not completely you know by any means saying it's a bad idea per se, but there's always trade-offs. Yeah, 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 there are, there are absolutely. Um, okay, other news, a couple other things to follow up. Um, I think they dropped dropped the news uh, on, on the August bank holiday that the long-running investigation into the failure of HBOS. Which has been through more iterations than I remember since about 2008. Um, the FCA has concluded that no action will be taken. Um, uh, and the PRA. And yes, sorry, the PRA. Both, yes, of the, that, both that joined. That, that uh, the, the fact it was announced on the bank holiday might be taken as an indication that they was burying the news, maybe. But but I mean, I guess this is this goes to what what we talked about before about you know how long it potentially takes to get things done in. In, in when there's an enforcement lens on things, so you know the issues are in 2018. There were report there wasn't a formal report on it till 2015. A deep dive investigation was concluded in 2015, and now seven years later, seven years later, there's a decision not to take any further action. Uh, I mean, you know, no, no one who was around in 2008 is is, uh, <laughs> is still around to face the consequences anyway. Um, but it's, no, it's not I mean, a great, it's not a great success story, you would think, in terms of. No, 14 years is clearly not the right answer to this. And also there's just, I mean, 
both regulators said that they couldn't disclose any more for legal reasons, but there's an awful lot of public money been spent and there's not a lot of transparency. Mm. I, and I, I, again, I don't think that can be the right answer. I mean, it may be unavoidable in this case, but it's really, it, it doesn't feel good uh, going forward. And, you know, there is something about how how well set up the regulators are to take on these sorts of cases. And, and ultimately that boils down to resource, but but there is, you know, there is something about how much risk you're prepared to take, what's the right balance, uh, and are you really, you know, are you really geared up to go after the right cases? We'll, we'll talk, we'll talk I mean, there have been a couple of regulatory fines in the last, uh, few weeks which we'll touch on in a minute but I know you in one of your blogs you know it was just a contrast which I thought was incredibly effective between the um the HBOS you know 14 years and nothing happens versus I think it's CFTC in mm-hmm. in America which landed a group of banks with a 1.8 billion dollar fine I think it was for, for around you know inaccuracies in regulatory reporting and that investigation started well a year ago basically yeah. didn't it, it was then uh, so it became public a year ago, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I used to say this at the time. I, I think one of the things with our, with the UK's financial crime and enforcement approach generally is that you have to, you have to take account of the fact that it's really quite different from what happens in the US, and you have to be happy that we are in the right place on that. Um, and I don't know the answer, but I'm not sure that we've. I'm not sure that we've really thought through what sort of regime we want to have. We, you know, the FSA went from being not an enforcement-led regulator to be all about credible deterrence. Whether it's yeah. really delivered, you know, and that's sort of carried yeah, yeah. on. Whether that's really delivered against that is another question. But yes. it, it, I think philosophically, it, it's probably still quite a live issue within both regulators. I think, and even at the, I would agree, and I think, in even at the level of politics I, I can't imagine any any politician would be saying we should give a you know a, a go slow enforcement <laughs> regime that basically gave people decades to to to, to avoid um you know the consequences of their actions that that can't that can't be right i don't think under any circumstances having said that there were a couple of um final notices and fines actually for the same organization so Citibank got hit twice once by the FCA, around, so which was this was interesting. I think uh, uh, quite a rarity. Well, you, know, you can see that how this this particular final notice would apply to other organisations in other circumstances. They were fined twelve billion, I think. Um, but 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 for failures, basically failing to implement the requirements of the market abuse regulation, particularly around surveillance of, of, of trading. Um, on time, which I think is like 2017. I think, I think the, the, the final notice says the, the bank actually didn't get it over the line properly till 18 months later. Um, now you could you could look at lots and lots of regulatory change where firms don't get things in on time and 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 say, well, is, you know, is, is this an indication the FCA might be interested in fining people, consumer duty, for instance? Um, I'm not so sure because I think the market abuse element of this is, is the critical part. There's a kind of zero tolerance regime there and, and clearly trying to send a message to to market participants but but that was an interesting one and the other one was a, was PRA they they fined city 44 million pounds um 
for failings in their, in their controls around capital and liquidity reporting, so the regulatory reporting, which led to errors. Um, I, I think the, the point there is probably less about, you know, City have been hit by this and more the fact that, uh, as the PRI says, this, this is the first fine uh, in this area. Uh, but given the amount of skilled person work and investigation work that has been ongoing, it's hard to imagine that would be the last fine because they've been basically um, looking very closely at, 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 at you know, every bank large and not so large, frankly. Um, so, so it's interesting to see that 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 fine get announced, and I would expect there to be others in due course. Um, uh, the uh, there was a paper, wasn't a Gavin on transforming data? I think it was called. So this is kind of one of the yeah, Bank of England FCA kind of joint programs that start, started out a while ago. It was going to be rather grand concepts of, of, of automating or regulatory reporting, machine readable, regulation, etc. How's, how's that going? Um, well, it, it, it's it's moving. Um, it started out as model driven machine ex executable regulatory reporting, and then it went to digital regulatory reporting and now transforming data. I mean, the, they are making progress. Um, I think it's slower than the original ambition. Um, I hope the original ambition hasn't overall been rolled back too much. Uh, I, I think from the firm side getting, you know, it, it potentially makes huge savings on regulator reporting. From the regulator side, you would get much, much more accurate and granular and comparable data, much more usable and reliable. Um, so there's big wins for everyone. The problem is that it's quite expensive in the first instance. Um, you have to get the technology right, and it probably takes three to five years from when you press the button. Um, and so they're going in little steps. Very good. Uh, yes, we'll, like many things on this podcast, I suspect we'll be talking about that for, for some time to come, uh, as yeah. you said, quite slow yeah. moving. Um, I think we should probably draw a line under this month's podcast there. I hope uh, everyone's enjoyed listening to that. We will be back. I believe uh, we're going to be in studio next time with a with a, with a video feed. Um, I, I, so Joe Rogan, I know, gets to sit around smoking cigars and drinking liquor. Um, and I think we should probably take a leaf out of his book. It, it, it can't hurt the podcast, I don't think. Um, Thank, thank you for everybody that's joined us. Uh, this podcast will continue to be available on all the all the main podcast uh, platforms, as will other material from Grant Thorn. So we encourage you to to do take a look at that. Um, I am going to step outside now because I'm working on my survival bunker, um, but on the assumption that uh, that things haven't really kicked off in the next month, uh, we will speak to you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.